morning. Welcome to each one of you. <clears throat> In about 735 B.C., the Spirit of the Lord came upon a man for the purpose of giving God's message to his chosen people. That man was Micah. We know nothing about Micah's family or his occupation. Know very little about him. What we do know is that he had a clear sense of prophetic calling. We, we can see that in Micah chapter 3 and verse 8. He said, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. The book of Micah can be roughly divided into thirds, with a third exposing the sins of God's people, about a third warning of coming judgment for those sins, and a third that gives hope for rest restoration after discipline. It's roughly thirds. I don't plan to uh, do an overview of the entire book of Micah this morning. Rather, I want to focus on a few verses. Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? The obvious answer is, there is no one like God. And this is a theme throughout his prophecy. He, he seems to use his name as a, it's a common theme. You know, it was fairly common among Jews at that time to have names that said something about God. And it tells us something about the time that Micah lived in that many Jews had names during that time period that referred to Baal. Baal worship was strong at that time, and Micah's name would have been a direct challenge to Baal worshipers. I'm going to read the first verse of uh, chapter 1 in the book of Micah. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. In Micah's time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom. Israel was sometimes called Samaria for its capital. And then the southern kingdom, Judah. Prophet Micah was from Moresheth, which is about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. And so verse 1 tells us that he prophesied during the reign of three kings. They believe mostly during the, the first two, and his, his prophecies were about both the northern and the southern kingdom. In speaking about the time Micah was prophesying, Thomas McCominsky, if I, I don't know if I'm butchering his name or not, he's not here to hear it, <laughs> said this, Micah prophesied during a time when Israel and Judah had risen to heights of economic affluence, but had fallen to depths of spiritual decadence. The territories of both kingdoms had become almost as extensive as they were during the reign of Solomon. When Israel, while Israel and Judah appeared to be strong externally, internal decay was sapping their strength and threatening to destroy the social fabric of the two kingdoms. I thought that was a good summary. You know, God's chosen people had lost sight of what God had done for them. 
how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and established a covenant relationship with them. And just the many, many ways he cared for them, provided for them miraculously, and they'd lost sight of that. The wealthy elite were becoming richer at the expense of the poor classes. And this was a violation of their covenant agreement with God. Social injustice wasn't the only problem in his day. Idol worship of the surrounding nations had crept in and taken over, was established in both the northern and the southern kingdom. And they were mixing idol worship with worshiping the true God. This was also a violation of their covenant with God. After Solomon's reign, when Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom set up worship centers at Bethel and at Dan toward the northern and southern ends of the, the northern kingdom to keep their people from going to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom to worship. I'll quote uh, Lawrence Richards. He said, The northern kingdom was founded with a false religious system with counterfeit worship centers at Bethel and Dan where counterfeit priests offered counterfeit sacrifices before on counterfeit altars on counterfeit holy days. <laughs> he uses counterfeit a lot to make a point. <laughs> the whole ritual of the nation's official faith was wrong. But even this twisted worship of God wasn't the main religion. The main religion was worshiping Baal on every high hill, as the Bible tells us. So that's the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was placing its confidence in worshiping God in the right way. They were, they had the, in the right place, Jerusalem. They had the right priests. They had the right altars, and they did it on the right days. They were just right. And they were placing their confidence in that but their heart wasn't in it. It was an empty ritual for most of them, and God was not impressed. We see this throughout the book of Micah. During the time that Micah spoke for the Lord, the Assyrian Empire was gaining strength rapidly, and it was threatening both kingdoms. And Micah warned repeatedly that the coming judgment of God, that the judgment of God was coming because of their sins because of their violating God's covenant. I'm going to focus this morning on a verse that's probably one of the most uh, well-known verses in the Old Testament, certainly in the book of Micah, and that's Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. I'd like to read uh, Micah 6, 1 through 8. Before we look at that, Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, 
Remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam son of Beor answered him, from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The scene here is a courtroom. And Micah is the prosecuting attorney for Jehovah. The mountains and the hills are the court and the judges. In verse 1 where he says, hear now what the Lord says. It's like order in the court. <laughs> Don't have a gavel up here. <laughs> Calling the court to order. Why would God call on the mountains and the hills to be judges? Why would you present your case before them? There's a couple reasons. One, they have a long history with both parties. Two, they have witnessed the people's unfaithfulness. The tops of the hills is where altars were built for idol worship. The tops of the hills is where prostitution took place as part of Baal worship. Now, in verse, at the end of verse 2, he says that the Lord has a complaint against his people and he will contend with Israel. It's legal terminology, meaning to plead a case in court or to fully prove. He's going to fully prove his case. But verse 3 brings a big surprise. When Micah, the prosecuting attorney, speaks, what do you expect? How many of you have been in court? Not asking if you were charged with something, just how many of you have been in court? It's, it's really interesting to watch. When the prosecuting attorney gets up, usually he lays out a detailed, he's got it all, he's got his ducks in a row, he's got everything lined out, and he lays out a convincing case of what has been done wrong, the, the case against the person. But here, the prosecuting attorney begins with a question. What have I done wrong to you? How have I wronged you? Please tell me. It's a surprise. In this court, you expect God to point fingers, and instead he asks, what have I done? Tell me how I've wronged you, because your behavior isn't, isn't lining up with what we agreed to. <clears throat> He's calling them my people several times in these verses. God is trying to woo them back into a covenant relationship, reminding them about how he's cared for them. And verses 4 and 5, I'm not going to uh, take much time there, just comment that he's, he's looked at, he's going into their past. He mentions how he's redeemed them from Egypt, from bondage and slavery. He mentions... Uh, Balak and Balaam, and, and he's reminding them of the ways that he's cared for them. 
how he's kept their covenant agreement. Verses 6 and 7 are interesting. It's the, the people's response with, with, what shall I come before the Lord? And they give four possibilities. Each of those four possibilities has a higher value than the one before it. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That's the expected. That's, that's what's expected is the year-old calves. The next one is unusually, it's extraordinary. Thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil. Oil is a very important part of their sacrifices. And they're, what, what do we bring here? How can we, how can we come before God? And then the last one is so unusual, and it's actually a violation of God's law, is do I give my firstborn for my transgression? A horrifying thought. And yet, during the time, the time period that Micah prophesied, um, King Ahaz actually sacrificed his son to an idol. You know, on the surface, asking these questions sounds good, but what you really have here are people who think that God can be bought. What will it take? What do I have to give you? How much do I have to pay to get God's favor? Will you ignore my lifestyle if I give you enough? Do you remember these were people who were used to bribing judges? And they've been getting away with it. Now, what can I do for God really is a, is a common question. In John 6, 28 and 29, some people asked Jesus, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus' response was, this is the work of God, to believe in him whom he sent, to believe in the Lord Jesus. In Acts 16, verses 30 and 31, when Paul and Silas are in jail, you have the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? The response was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, you have the rich young ruler who said, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We'd like to do something. Our human nature wants to be able to do something to earn God's favor. Salvation will produce good works but good works will not produce salvation. Let me repeat that. Salvation will produce good works, but good works will not produce salvation. I cannot buy salvation. The response in verse 8 <clears throat> Excuse me. The response in verse 8 is what I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at. It's the verse I've been thinking about all week. <clears throat> he 
He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He has shown you what is good. You already know. It was in the covenant that the people broke. Switches from addressing the nation to addressing the individual. He has shown you, O man, what is good. It's personal. What does God require of you? There's three things. To do justly. To do justly is just, fair, honest, true. To give to each one what is due. Matthew Henry summed it up as do wrong to none and do right to all. It gives the idea of integrity, moral uprightness, to do what is right no matter what the circumstances and no matter what anyone else does. You know, about, I don't know, nine years ago, Wayne, my father-in-law, wanted to sell his truck. He had an, an old Toyota truck that uh, had seen better days. He had worked it hard, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot left to it. But it had some life yet, and so he wanted to sell it. Caleb Nisley found out he wanted to sell it. He said, Wayne, how much do you want for your truck? And if I have the numbers right, he said $300. And Caleb's response got my attention. He said, I'll give you $500. <laughs> you ever buy a car like that? <laughs> do I have the numbers right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm close. <laughs> Don't know if I got it exact. He, he offered him much more money than he was asking for it. Because he thought it was worth more than that, so he paid him more. He did what was just. He didn't just go with, oh, he said 300, okay, I'll give you two. And you meet in the middle, you know, at 250. No, instead of driving a hard bargain, he went with what he thought was fair. Proverbs 21.3 says to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord. Loving mercy is the second one. Vine says to love mercy. Mercy is loving kindness. Loyalty, to be kind and to pity. Webster's defines mercy as compassionate or kindly forbearance shown toward an offender, or an enemy, or other person in one's power. In other words, when someone has wronged me, mercy is not giving that person what they deserve. This goes against our natural inclination. I want to tell you a story about my little friend Victor. Victor was a Jack Russell Terrier, and sadly he died in 2014, I think. But uh, Victor was, was our little friend for 12 years, and I got pretty close to Victor. It took a little while. We called him Victor because of his victorious attitude. He thought he was the top dog. He should set the rules, no one else. But given time, Victor eventually accepted me as the top dog. One day, Ann and I were walking on this road, actually. We were just back here, just past Charity Lane a little. Some of you may, may remember there was a donkey 
on the left-hand side of the road as you go back. I don't know if it's still there or not. I haven't noticed it recently. But there was a donkey there, and Victor got really excited when he saw this donkey. He knew about farm animals. He had been over, we'd taken him walking over on another farm, and when I turned him loose, before I realized there was heifers in the next field, he spotted them before I did and was gone. He ran those heifers all around the field, because you know how heifers will run for anything. He was really impressed with himself. He was really strutting and swaggering when he came back because he ran the whole herd around the field twice before he had decided to listen. Next time, he tried it on milk cows. He ran them all the way down the end of the pasture, and one of them turned around and looked to see how tiny this thing was that was chasing her. She turned around and started after him, and the whole herd ran him back to me. <laughs> Most of his experiences with farm animals have been pretty good, and so he thought this donkey looked like fair game. He was going to have some fun, and he was really barking and lunging. I had him on a leash, fortunately. He wanted to get to the donkey. Well, I knew this donkey could kill him very easily. Victor stood about this tall, about that long, and he really wanted to get to the donkey. I wouldn't let him, so I got in to hold him on the leash, and I went over to the donkey, and I made a big scene of petting the donkey and making a fuss over it so Victor would see this. I went back and got him, and I wanted to see what he would do. I kept his leash real tight, and I let him ease up to it and kept telling Victor, we're going to be gentle, be very gentle. Victor did not want to be gentle. He was quivering. He was just shaking all over. With, he was so excited. He wanted to get to this thing. He was growling and showing his teeth. Well, he knew what gentle meant. When he was unkind to his wife, Trixie, if he was too rough with her, asserting his dominance, I would tell him, no, Victor, be gentle. And he would stop, and he'd go over and lick her. <laughs> well, I told him, we're going to be gentle with the donkey. That was a bit of a stretch. But I let him very slowly come up, and the donkey was really nice, stretching through the fence to reach him. And I let their noses come together. <laughs> I'm ready to jerk him back if anything bad happens. Well, he actually went up and licked the donkey on the end of the nose. <laughs> we left good enough alone, and we just went away after that. You know, that was a struggle for Victor. He wanted everything in Victor, wanted to bite that donkey in the nose. But because he had humbled himself, he accepted me as the top dog. He was willing to give him a lick instead of biting him and chasing him. He wanted to please me. Now, Victor did not... He didn't truly show mercy because the donkey hadn't done anything wrong to Victor. But he does demonstrate going against what his natural inclination was because he was, he was willing to, to listen to my voice. <clears throat> show mercy. You know, the Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God showed mercy to us while we were his enemies. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God did not give us what we deserved, what I deserved. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Is there someone who has wronged me? Am I willing to show mercy? Showing mercy is not giving 
someone what they deserve, when it is in my power to do so. I'm going to turn briefly to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 31 to 36. This is Jesus speaking. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. To do justly and to love mercy. The third is to walk humbly with your God. Humility. We find it all through the Bible. It's so basic to the Christian life. Humility is recognition of one's true position before God. Humility is having a proper sense of one's worth, not proud or arrogant. To turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, reading verses 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." I'd like to continue reading, but I won't for the sake of time. The example of Jesus, humility. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Someone has said, and I don't know who to credit with this, quote, those who know God will be humble. Those who know themselves cannot be proud. I'll repeat that. Those who know God will be humble. Those who know themselves cannot be proud. You know, in verses 6 and 7 of Micah chapter 6, the people asked four questions of increasing intensity, and God responded in the same way. To do justly is to give people what is due them. To love mercy is not to give people what they deserve. To walk humbly with God is the basis for the first two. All of this is impossible without the Holy Spirit. It takes the work of God in my heart. 
1 John teaches us that my relationship with God will have a direct effect on my relationship with people. And the way that I relate with the people around me is a barometer of my relationship with God. In Matthew 22, Jesus summarized all the law and the prophets with these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, really those two sum up Micah 6 and verse 8 very well. When I walk humbly with God, I will live a just and merciful life. What does God require of me? What God requires of me is that I'm humble enough to realize I need Him. That I trust Him enough to obey Him even when it goes against my natural inclinations. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God wants a relationship with me. And he wants me to treat others the way that he's treated me.